The virtual CISO moment is brought to you by VCISO Services, a leading provider of quality and experienced virtual chief information security officers for small and mid-sized businesses. Check them out at vcisoservices.com. Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the virtual CISO moment. Got a special episode for you all today. Instead of a discussion, some of you know that I'm creating a short video series on YouTube about my consulting experience, about the, all the experience I've gone through becoming a successful cybersecurity consultant. And what I'm trying to do is to give you all some of the knowledge that I've learned along the way over the past five and a half years, thinking that that may help you if you're going to go down that path, or at least making the decision to maybe go down that path. So for today's episode, I'm going to string together episodes four and five from there. Those are the most recent. So episode four is talking about cyber concerns, and episode five talks about business concerns. Now, if you're interested in some of the other episodes as I produce them, I probably have four or five or six episodes left. Then I would encourage you to go directly to the YouTube channel. The link will be in the show notes, but it's very easy to find. The handle is VCISO, so that's very easy to remember, V-C-I-S-O. If you're interested, subscribe to the channel, and then you will be notified whenever there's a new one out there. It'll be listed as a premiere, and you won't miss a single episode. But until then, here's episode three, cyber concerns, and episode four, business concerns. Greg here, and this is another video, short video, about some of the things that I've learned about being a cybersecurity consultant successfully over the last five and a half, six years, with the idea that maybe some of my experience might help you if you're thinking about going down that road or if you're already down that road. And certainly, I'm always wanting feedback. If you have some great ideas, please let me know as well, too. But this is all me trying to help you with a few things that I've learned over the years. And, and so today we're going to talk a little bit about cybersecurity consulting specifically. That's not to say that some of the things that I'm talking about won't apply to other consulting areas, but these are things that have come to top of mind as I've gone through my cybersecurity consulting career. So the first one is kind of obvious. We're talking about least privilege here. You want to make sure that wherever and whenever that you do have access to something of the clients, that it's the least privilege of what you need to have access to. I know you're probably thinking, well, duh, I mean, that's kind of like a basis of an information security program. Well, sometimes I've seen where clients have provisioned access for me, for example, to do like, say, a firewall rule review that for whatever reason, I was given more than read-only access. Uh, I was actually given rule writing privilege. Now, I definitely don't want that for a couple of reasons. First of all, violation least privilege. I'm not writing firewall rules as part of the virtual CISO engagement. That's not what we do, but we do review them in order to make sure that there's, you know, check and balance and second line of defense, make sure that there's nothing in there that could pose a serious risk to the organization. But if I have access to write things, not only does that violate least privilege, there's no reason for me to have it. I could easily make a mistake. I could be in there and accidentally delete a rule and never know it. And now I have set the company up and me up for liability. And I don't want that. I want to make sure that my liability in any engagement is as small as possible. 
That is one of my primary goals, and that should be the primary goal of any client that engages with us and any any service that the client engages with outside of us. I mean, you that's kind of an obvious thing. You want to make sure that you keep things as tight as possible. And that also includes need to know. I don't have a need to know, for example, if I'm working for a bank. I don't have a need to know any account numbers, customer information, balances. I have no need to know any of that. And I don't want to ever have a situation where I'm given access to core with all of this information. There's no reason for that. Even if you're like a full-time CISO at a bank, there's really very little or no reason for the CISO to have access to that information. And that, that helps with the separation of duties for keeping in the three line of defense model. So I'm trying to think if there's ever been a time in the almost six years that I've done this, that I have had to have had access to the client's client's information. If I think of one later, I'll let you know, but off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Now, number three, whenever possible, try to use the client's infrastructure for all of the things that you're doing, all of the information of theirs that you're looking at. Let me give you an example. One of the things, obviously, that the virtual CISO does is to work with corporate policies. It's kind of a basic, basic thing, but... Um, where entirely possible, I would rather work with the policy within, say, their G Suite or their Office 365 environment instead of extracting it to my computer or to the VCSO services infrastructure. Because now I'm taking on a little bit of liability. I have the company's information, my client's information on my infrastructure. Now, obviously, too, it's like I want to try to limit that as much as possible if I do have to do it. I want to make sure that I have the proper protections in place. Uh, we'll make sure that only certain team members have access to certain clients' information, that sort of thing. Again, we're getting down to least privilege and need to know. But you can, you can get around that risk if you try to emphasize the, to have an account, say, within the, their organization. So that could be an Office 365 account. It makes it easier, too, when you're doing collaboration with your client because now you can share internally in their infrastructure and not have to create an external share, and, and which is more complicated, but certainly that's another thing that, that you can do as well, too. We do that for some clients where it just makes more sense. You can use a, a Citrix um, share file or, or SharePoint in Microsoft or some other sharing so long as, of course, you put in the proper controls, two-factor, and all of that. I'm not going to go down the two-factor. Um, the next one that I thought of, and I scribbled down a few notes when I was doing this. The next one I thought of was in the instance of where this, this is an actual instance where if you're doing social engineering, and I don't do much social engineering in what I do, but that's certainly a component of um, cybersecurity physical penetration testing. You know, going to on-site to an organization and trying to pretend that you're somebody else and basically gain physical access to areas where thereby you can show that you can exfiltrate information or have access to the network, that sort of thing. If you're doing that, it's often best practice to carry what I like to call a get-out-of-jail-free letter, and that's something that's basically 
is an authorization that you are doing a penetration test that's authorized by the organization. You have been challenged, and upon your response to the challenge, you produce this letter, and that way everybody's happy. Because that's, well, that's part of the point is that when you're doing social engineering like that, you're, you're trying to see if you're actually going to be challenged. So hopefully you, that would be a pass, right? But when you're challenged, you want to say, okay, the gig's up. Because obviously, um, if they think that you're a criminal, which they're probably thinking at this point in time that there's something not right, you need to emphasize that, no, you're authorized. So, so far, so good. That's the right way to do it. This is not the way to do it, particularly like if you're in a bank. And I'm paraphrasing how this happened, but it did happen. I did not do this. This is a story that I heard. The pen tester, upon being challenged, said, you're right. I'm not here to fix the printer. I'm not who I said say I am. Let me show you why I'm here. And reaches behind him to get the letter. But think about it. You're at a bank. Think about what the pen tester just said. What are you thinking? You're thinking you're about to get shot, <laughs> most likely. So when, when, you, when you answer the challenge, just be cognizant of the environment that you're in, okay? I can't stress that enough. The fifth one is ethics. And there's a whole suite with regards to ethics. We in cybersecurity, by almost want to say definition, but certainly by role, we're entrusted with a huge, huge amount. We have to approach our job ethically. And that includes making sure that you don't misrepresent yourself. So I'll give you a couple of examples there, real world examples. One would be, I was just talking with someone on the podcast that they had related a story where, that's the Virtual Cecil Moment podcast, if you're not familiar with that, where this gentleman, he worked, um, he, I can't remember where he said he was working, but but in essence, the discussion had had grown about virtual CISOs and, and some of the pros and cons, some of the good ones out there and some of the bad ones. And he said that what he's, again, I'm paraphrasing, and it's not exact, but that in his experience that sometimes virtual CISOs, particularly from MSPs, are really there as more like an, an insider to the account. In other words, they're not really there to help build the program, never mind the fact that part of our discussion was the present, pre presenting the virtual CISO, something that they're not, and we'll get to that in a minute. But they're in, and their main goal is to try to upsell a tool that the MSP is going to be able to manage for them. So instead of like having the concern of the client first and foremost and top of mind, their top of mind is making a sale, making an inside sale here. Hey, you know, that's why sometimes keeping the virtual CISO service separate from your MSP, which is what I promote, that's why it, it's, it's, it's preferred. And that's why as a provider of virtual CISO services, we will not step into that other arena being an MSP because I don't want to cross the streams. So that's not to say that it can't be managed that way, that it certainly can. 
but you've got to be cognizant about that. And you've got to make sure that you have your client's in, uh, best interest at heart first. That's number one. And number two, and I've talked about this on the podcast, do not misrepresent yourself. There are so many people that are calling themselves virtual CISOs out there that aren't truly risk management professionals. They're more like technical cybersecurity managers. Or as the same guest on the podcast that I was talking about, as he said, he, um, that sometimes that in his experience, the virtual CISOs had no cyber experience and, and very little IT experience. And it seems like that the thing that they were best in was billable hours. And I hate that because the, the true virtual CISO is such a, a benefit to an organization. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think that. I'm so passionate about it. But don't misrepresent yourself with that. Don't misrepresent yourself with a degree, for example, where um, sometimes companies that don't do background checks for, um, for education, you're, you, you might be missing whether or not they actually have the valid degree that they say that they have. I will do background checks on education. I'll do criminal background checks. And don't misrepresent yourself on any of that process. Because if, if I were to bring on someone who misrepresented their credentials in any way, shape, or form, present that to a client, and then somehow that got out, my company now is hugely liable, and I'm not going to do that. And you can't do that either. And so if you're at the point where you're building your, your firm and you're, you're bringing on contractors to help with you, make sure that you vet your, your resources properly because your clients are expecting that. And one other thing about misrepresenting is... And I, I came across this with a new client some time ago. I was going through their initial, we, we do an initial request for information when we start with a client because we want to figure out the as is. Um, depending upon scope of what you're doing, you want to do that as well too. If you're doing something like a penetration test or a vulnerability assessment, you want very limited information. The whole point is to try to figure it out yourself from the, from the perspective of an outside um, criminal trying to get in. But in our perspective, it's the other way around. We want to know as much about what's the current environment so that we can start to assess risk and gaps and then figure out how to fill them. But this one particular thing, talking about misrepresentation, this firm had provided a penetration test, which was nothing more than a vulnerability assessment that went wrong, that wasn't done correctly. They, they ran a vulnerability assessment this is actually, if you're familiar with this, this is, this is OpenVos. Uh, uh, and, and when you run, and presumably with, uh, using Greenbone, and to me, it seems like that they had a standard discovery on. And you know, I believe that that's ICMP. I don't want to get too technical, but long story short, they ran the scan. They didn't get any vulnerabilities. Well, if you look at what the scan result was, they said that there weren't any targets. So the first thing we did is when we got in, we ran a scan against those uh, targets and, and um, with the idea, configured it, assuming that they were up and found some, some vulnerabilities. But that's bad enough. But the company that ran this presented it as a penetration test. They said that we conducted a penetration test over X number of days and we, we found this is our process for doing a penetration test. It involves some um, 
automated stuff and then some manual stuff to try to get in. We found no vulnerabilities, so we were, we, we did not, we were not able to get in and do anything. Which, yay, I mean, the, the company found that and thought, hey, well, that's a great penetration test right there. We don't have an issue. But they didn't do anything. They didn't find anything. So, you know, that's a misrepresentation there. Don't do that. And then, finally, don't do anything without explicit authorization. So if you're running a penetration test or a vulnerability assessment, make sure that you have the authorization to do so. I know that that sounds obvious, but sometimes we tend to get overzealous. What can happen is that if you're running a vulnerability assessment scan and you do not have the um, authorization to do so, and at the same time, something happens in their environment which causes a business continuity incident, whether or not that scan caused it, you will automatically be assumed to be liable for it because you were running a scan. That's the only thing that changed, they'll say. You were running a scan that everything was working fine until you started the scan and now everything is down. And you might face um, something as simple as like, okay, we won't do that again and continue with the client. You may lose that client. Um, or it could even get to the point where they're going to come after you for losses. And so now you start talking about things that you need to think about for your small business, including liability insurance. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying these. Um, again, I always welcome feedback. Uh, only put this on the YouTube channel and on a link from LinkedIn. And you can always drop comments in there. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Hey, everybody. Greg here again to talk a little bit about consulting, being an independent consultant. And some of the things that I think that maybe you should know about if you're thinking about going down the same path of being a cybersecurity consultant like I have been for the last five and a half years and hope to do for at least five and a half more years. Today, I want to talk a little bit about business aspects. And I know it can be kind of dry because, well, that's not really what you're in this for. You're in it to do some cool work and to obviously make some money because you want to be able to eat and provide for your family and all that. But I think that there are some things that you definitely need to consider when you first start out. And I think the, the most important one is considering forming your own LLC, Limited Liability Corporation. I'm sure you've seen that before in some places. Um, my company, VCSO Services, that's one of the first things that I did. And you'll notice that in the logo, for example, it, in the logo, for example, it says VCSO Services, LLC, Limited Liability Corporation. Well, what does that mean? It's pretty descriptive. It limits the liability for the person involved. Now, there are different types of LLCs. If you're just starting off on your own, uh, it's a, I believe it's referred to as a pass-through or something like that, where basically the, the taxes are pretty much the same as far as filing for federal income taxes here in the, in the United States with a couple of other forms that you need to do. But basically, you're a sole proprietor, you're a sole owner, and you, you take care of all of the um, taxes just like you would like income tax to an extent. 
Um, there are other taxes involved with regards to other taxes that you need to pay. That's a different conversation, but you need to be aware of that as well. But what the LLC does, as opposed to not forming an LLC or doing a DBA, doing business as, is that it does limit your liability in case something goes wrong and somebody sues you, to be quite honest. You, you make a mistake somewhere, you, for whatever reason, something happens and you're sued. Now, related to that is what's referred to as E&O, errors and omissions. This is insurance. This is liability insurance in case something goes wrong as well. You want to have that coverage. It's not terribly expensive, particularly for, for just one person and going out and, and doing all that. But you want to make sure that you have the proper coverage in place. And what is that coverage? Well, uh, it could be as little as 500000 for each instance, or you'd have to talk to a broker and go up the road. And, and you're, you also may find, too, that, that clients of yours may request that you, cover, that you have this insurance. And you, you might even want to consider some cyber liability along with that as well. Although, if you follow best practices, and I believe I talked about this on a previous episode of this, you really want to limit the client information that you have access to so that you don't have much cyber liability. I'm, I don't know if cyber liability is necessary uh, as, a, as just starting out, um, depending upon what controls are in place and what you're actually doing. If you're doing stuff that's more involved on their infrastructure, like you're doing penetration testing or something along those lines, well, yeah, maybe cyber liability is something to consider. Um, you do have to consider taxes, like I said beforehand, and remember, when you're working for yourself, you're paying um, the, the amount of taxes that the employer would be paying. That's, what a, that's a, one of the differences between a contractor and an employer. You're responsible for all your, all your taxes. Any contracting agreement that you sign will stipulate that. And if you don't understand that going in as a contractor, you're going to be very surprised as the year goes on. Because you also have to file here in the States, everything I talk about is with regards to the United States, you have to file uh, quarterly um, estimates. You have to pay as you go because you're not paying as you go like you would if you were an employee. Remember, an employee, you have your taxes taken out on a period, on a whatever the pay period is. Usually it's a month or something like that. Same thing with like uh, Social Security. Social Security, you have to pay your own Social Security. You don't have. You're, you're the, per, the group that you're contracting with, because you're a contractor, they're not going to pay any of that stuff. You have to take care of it yourself. Now, you also have to think about, as you grow your business, whether or not the people that you bring on are going to be contractors or employees. And I'll pass on some advice that my SCORE mentor told me several years ago. If you can run with contractors, run as long as you can with contractors. Because once you cross the line from contractors to employees... There's a lot more that you, as the business, are responsible for. Remember, employees, if you hire an employee, you have to pay their Social Security taxes, their Medicare, Medicaid, their uh, workers' comp. There's a whole bunch of things in addition to other benefits and all of that. Um, but you need, to, you need to think about that as part of, part of your business strategic planning when you're starting this. Now, when you're starting business, too, it's like you have to think a little bit about social media. I'm going to touch upon this a little bit more when we talk about getting clients, but uh, you definitely want to establish social media presence on several 
platforms and and leverage them because you want to get your name out there, obviously. Uh, the platforms that I recommend that I've used are LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And for the most part, if you can get a handle, if you will, that's rather descriptive for what it is that you do, then that helps a little bit with people searching for you, for example, the search engine optimization. Again, I'll talk more about getting clients later in another episode. But for example, um, YouTube, the channel that you're looking at here, the, the handle for this is at VCSO. Well, you know, someone looking for VCSO stuff probably will land on here. So it makes it a little bit more descriptive. Um, you have to think about tools that you want to use for your business because businesses, they don't run themselves. And when I say tools, what, what am I talking about? Um, obviously, you're going to need to have computing tools. You need to have a laptop. I actually started out with a Chromebook. And, and as I look over to my right, you can't see it on the camera, but my, my first Chromebook that I used in the business uh, is now my TV. I just use it for TV um, because it, it's more or less out of date and isn't supported anymore. But hey, it's still good for, for bringing up Hulu. And a Chromebook worked very well for me because I decided early on that I was going to be a SaaS-based organization. All of the, all the tools that I'm going to use to support my business would need to be SaaS-based, so software as a service. Probably one of the most important ones there are what are you going to use for your basic back office stuff, like creating Word documents and, or rather I should say documents and spreadsheets and that sort of thing, because... You may not create Word documents necessarily. You may create Google Docs, for example. And you can always port uh, Google Docs to Word and, and vice versa. They, the, the, the compatibility between Microsoft and Google has really become a lot better in the last few years, particularly when I first started out using um, uh, Google Sheets. I, I, I actually, early on, also signed up and, uh, with, with Microsoft Office. You'll have to think, of course, like a domain name and all of that um, because you'll want a web presence and you'll want to build a website, whether or not you do that through a service or you do it yourself. You'll need to establish that sort of presence as well, too. And what domain name you're going to use, who's going to be your hoster, those are necessary tools you need to think about. And then, of course, email because your domain name is so much ingrained in what your email is. My personal opinion is that you don't want to have a... a a generic Gmail address. If you say um, greatvcso at gmail.com, when you're, when, you're, when you're providing a Gmail address, it, it really doesn't, in my, in my opinion, this is all my opinion, it, it shows a, a level of amateurism. And what you want to project is professionalism. Domains aren't all that expensive and it's a cost of doing business. You'll hear that phrase a lot, a cost of doing business. Um, with regards to setting up how you're going to do the business. Project management is another one. How are you going to manage your projects? A lot of times clients want to be able to see that you can track progress. You can track time if in some instances. You can track um, other elements with regards to managing projects. And what I'm talking about here is that you don't necessarily have to go out and get Microsoft Project, for example. But one example that I used early on, actually used this in, in my previous bank career, which I really liked and then uh, have used it um, still to this day, is called um, uh, Gantt Chart, I believe is the name of the free software, and it provides you the ability to make a Gantt Chart. Um, there are also some other um, 
Now, that's not a SaaS. Oh, no, they do have a SaaS component now. I just haven't used it. There are other um, software uh, out there for project management. Uh, you can leverage something like Smartsheet, for example. That's also good for collaboration. We'll get to collaboration in just a moment. Um, I, I've become a fan of Jira, and that was because uh, my first client is a virtual CISO. They used Jira, and I had no idea what Jira was at the time. But I, I like the idea of using Jira to, to track and to assign um, issues and projects and all of that. You want to kind of get away from using spreadsheets as much as possible. Now, if you're just yourself, it's easy to manage. But as you start building clients and having folks working with you on your clients, you're going to want to look into some of these projects and some of these items. And, and I would suggest that since there are free versions of this, to start out and do that uh, right out the gate. There's free Jira, there's free Confluence, there's free uh, Smartsheets. Um, now, something that isn't necessarily free, and that's a secure file share. So you could do that, for example, if you are using Microsoft Office or Google, I don't think they call it G Suite now, they call it Google Works, but the Google platform um, where you can share off your G Drive and all of that. You can also buy um, products that are specific to that, such as uh, ShareFile um, from Citrix. I always confuse SharePoint and ShareFile. I had to pause for a second. Yeah, I think I got it right. Um, Dropbox or Box or something like that. But clients will ask you for a methodology how you can transfer information that's in a secure manner. And if, if you don't have a platform to bring to the table for that, well, that, here comes that professionalism thing again. They're, they're going to really want to expect that. Now, mind you, I, I, I have said before that I prefer to use the client's infrastructure for sharing and for working on items and stuff, but you still need to have that as well, too. You may actually lose out on prospects if you don't have some of these tools in place. Something very basic that you may not have thought about is your phone. You need a phone number. You need a, a, a number that they can call you at. And you yes, you can go ahead and use Google Voice if you want. Um, that, again, isn't as professional. I don't think, that'll, though, that you should give out your personal number or your personal cell phone number because that just is not terribly professional as well, too. Um, there are some services out there. I don't mind saying that I've used Grasshopper for five years. Now, this isn't an explicit endorsement, obviously, of any of these products. I'm just telling you some of the things that I've used. And Grasshopper is one of those items that I looked into some different products very early on and, and landed on it. And it has served me well over the last almost six years now. And you got to think about accounting, too. Um, probably if you're starting in, in cybersecurity, you're not an accountant. Um, if you're starting out rather and being a cybersecurity consultant, you might be, I, I don't know. Uh, I do recommend that you have access to a CPA to help you with your finances. I certainly have done that since day one because my core competency is information security. It is not finances. And my accountant recommended when I first started that, hey, you need to have a, a platform for maintaining all of your accounting stuff. So creating invoices, managing payments, managing um, other items, and, and being able to produce financials. And my CPA recommended that I look at a product called Wave from Wave Apps. And Wave actually is, is very good 
I used that for several years. It, it, it was no cost um, for, the, for the basic version, no cost. And you can take care of a lot of these simple things that you need to do for a business. And again, you definitely, definitely need to keep your business finances separate from your personal finances. Um, you need to have a separate business account. With, without a doubt, you, you, you don't want to skip that. And I would suggest, too, that you have a separate business credit card account. There's a lot of things that you're doing if you're buying these SaaS, uh, software as a service, these platforms. Uh, it makes the most amount of sense to pay with credit card. You could probably pay most of them with ACH, and I would imagine some of them take Bitcoin. I don't know. I just found that credit card is probably the easiest way to go. You have a running record. You can dispute if something happens. Um, you definitely want to make sure that you have all that separate, though, uh, because also at the end of the year, you're going to have to produce financials. And when you produce financials, a lot of what goes in there is, is what can you write off as a business expense? You need to think about that as well, too. So every, every expense that you have, it, it's a category. And there are certain rules to what you can and cannot write off. There are certain nuanced rules around entertainment and meals, for example. I don't know the rules. That's why I have a CPA. <laughs> but I'm able to, as time goes on, if I take a client or a prospect out to lunch, for example, and I use my credit card, well, when I'm going through my accounting system, I don't use Wave anymore, but when I could have done this in Wave 2, I would have categorized that as meals and entertainment or something along those lines. And therefore, when I produce my financials at the end of the year, everything is categorized, hopefully, correctly. Now, I would also recommend that your accountant check how you're categorizing stuff because they may come up with like a different... Now, you can't really write off that in that particular um, aspect. Now, speaking about write-ups, and this is the last item that I'll talk about today, write-offs rather, is, well, starting from the question of whether or not you're going to use a home office or if you're going to use a co-working space or if you're actually going to go out and get an office like I have here. Now, when I started out, I had a home office. I did everything from home. I loved it. I mean, the whole concept of, of being able to work from home, I never had that in my career. I never had the ability to work from home. And I mean, for various reasons, but basically what it boils down to is that the companies that I worked with, they didn't offer that. And that's okay. That's fine. And this was pre-COVID. So I saw some statistic, uh, uh, roughly a quarter, maybe a little bit less of uh, positions allowed some work at home pre-COVID and now well over 50% do. I think it's like 57%. But I didn't like the commute. I commuted from um, where I lived in the Nashville suburbs up to Nashville in Tennessee. And sometimes if you all commute from suburbs to city, you know that that can be a little bit frustrating sometimes, particularly if there's an accident. And then you got to deal with downtown, you got to deal with parking. There's parking fees involved, there's gas fees involved, and you really lose time doing that. You could lose like two hours a day, probably on average when you take into account getting, getting set to leave, leaving, finding a place to park, parking, going up the elevator, getting set on in your office. Whereas if you're working from home, you can just walk in your pajamas across the house to your home office. It's great, sort of. For someone like me, after six months, I was going crazy. I needed to be around people. I didn't need, necessarily need to be around people that I worked with. I just needed to be around people. And for me, going out and going to like a Starbucks or something, I don't know why we always use Starbucks as an example for like finding a place with Wi-Fi. I never go to Starbucks. But finding a place with Wi-Fi and working, I did that a couple of times, thought it was cool. And then, yeah, that got kind of old. So uh, I started off with a co-working space. 
just uh, two, two days a week, I'd go in, find my favorite cube, and work in that space. And then the time came that, well, an office, a very small office, about 50 square feet, became available in that co-working space. And uh, I decided, well, it was a different co-working space, same company, and I decided to take it because I found that I could be more efficient if I actually had my stuff with me. And so then I still was doing some work from my home office, but more and more I was doing from my office office. And then um, sometime later, about a year ago now, I moved into this much larger office, about 120 square feet. Suits me very well. I can get an awful lot done. Yes, you got to pay for it. It's a cost of doing business, obvious. It's, it's, it's not cheap. But you have to weigh whether or not that that's something that is worth it for what you do. And what I found is in that, in keeping me more efficient, having stuff around, having all my equipment here, and just being able to have a place to, to come and decompress, it's very much worth it. So that's the final thing that you need to consider. You're going to work from home or you're not going to work from home and how you're going to manage all that. If you work from home, remember you could have some write-offs with regards to square footage, with regards to internet connection and all that. Uh, but talk to your accountant about those sorts of things. So that's it for today. I hope you're enjoying this. If you've got some comments or questions, please leave them in the, in the channel. Would love it if you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Again, our handle here is at VCSO. It's very easy to remember. And look forward to talking to you next time. And again, thank you for listening. Hope it's been something very much useful for you. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed those two mini episodes, I would encourage you again to go out to YouTube to the handle VCSO and subscribe. And that way you'll be notified whenever there's a new video up there. And until then, stay secure.